for those of you who don't know me, it's actually lovely. I, I don't recognize a lot of you. Um, my name is Chris. I've been part of the church for six years, uh, and I'm married to Nay. And the reason why I'm not here very much anymore is because I've gone to the other side. I now am part of the 10.30 service because we have a lovely baby girl called Margot. That's, that's her. That was the appropriate response. Thank you. Uh, and she is just about turning five months. She's a delight. That wasn't the face I got when I left, but she is a, she is a delight all the time. And we are, it's a new stage of life for us. I'm currently in my first year of uh, primary school teaching as well. So life is full. And uh, if I'm not thinking about my own child and worrying about her, then I'm thinking about somebody else's child and worrying about them. But it's a wonderful, wonderful time. And uh, it's just wanted to extend my welcome to you as well. As we carry on this journey of going through the Sermon on the Mount, if you just joined us for the first time today, welcome. We are deep into the Sermon on the Mount. It titles it there, Jesus' Blueprint for Life. You could think of it as Jesus' manifesto. His key teachings, his key principles, the key message that he wants to get across to his disciples and for us today. And the title of our talk is called Radical Love. I met my wife, Nay. We've been nearly married for four years. And I met Nay actually here. I was living with a family at the time, and it turned out that the family I was living with was her uh, sister. And so I got to meet her through that. But we played it cool. I was 21, 22. I thought, I've got some moves of development over the last five years. I know what I'm doing. And we thought that actually to get to know each other, we'd message each other through Facebook. Because that clearly is the language of love. And uh, what, we, what we did over the course of about, a year, about six months was message each other backward and forward. I'd, I'd uh, hit her with killer questions like, who's your favorite person, Iron Man or Batman? We're 23, 22 at this time. So clearly the mature level. But, we decided, but there came a time when I thought, you know what, I can't just message her. We actually have to have some sort of face-to-face interaction if this blossoming relationship is going to go any, any further. And I did what all courageous men do. I said to my good friend, I was like, mate, I need backup. You're going to need to be my third wheel for the entire date. And he said, what are you doing? And I said, you're going to have to do it. I'll buy you lunch. And he said, sold. So we all went to London for, the, for, uh, for a day. And I was like, I've got this nailed. I know exactly what I'm going to do. We're going to, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. You, you, my friend, are going to give some really excellent anecdotes about myself, unlike Niall, to build me up, not to bring me down. <laughs> and actually to have a really good time doing it. Got it sorted. I, I, I prepped in four, four stories, please, over the course of the day. You can tell me about my entire character, if you like, but make it positive. And he did. But about midday, he said to me, he said, you know what, mate? You don't need me here anymore. I'm bored, but also, like, I'm, I'm watching you two, and you're getting on absolutely like a house on fire. You're trying to control this situation when you don't need to. When actually, obviously, it was very early days, but obviously this t- attraction that you have for each other, just roll with it. And in a, of course, excellent segue into the message for today, the love that we're looking at isn't something to be controlled, isn't something that we can manipulate for our own end. I realized that in a very simple, very, I think of it now, very silly way, four, five, six years ago now. And something that I've noticed about this message of the gospel, because this radical love, as you'll see, is pivotal to the whole Jesus message, the whole following Jesus, the way, that he, the way which is what he called it. 
And this message that we have today is about love. And most of us probably are like, I've heard this before. I know what you're going to say. You're going to mention a story about the prodigal son, maybe. If not, if you've never heard of the story of the prodigal son, I urge you to read it. You might say something about John 3.16. I know the story. High fives. Let's go home. Nailed it. But actually, I've noticed that with any gospel message that Jesus gives us, or the gospel message that Jesus gives us, it's a two-sided coin. It's something that we receive, and then it's something that we give. Think of it as a currency in the kingdom of heaven, which is what God calls it. We want to be forgiven, but sometimes we find it difficult and choose not to forgive others. We want to have the unconditional love that Jesus gives us, but we like to choose how much love sometimes we give to another person. Because this, this idea of Jesus loving us is pivotal, but it's not the end. It's not remotely the end. And if we're not careful, we might miss what Jesus is about to say in this scripture here, or more dangerously, we ignore it. So, I want you, if you can, to imagine going back to first century Jerusalem as a Hebrew. In my, in my class of year threes, we put our imagination hats on. But you don't have to do that today. I'll spare you the embarrassment. Jess has. God bless you. Thank you, Jess. Uh, but you don't have to do that. Okay, but we've got this message of love. You are a first century Jew. You are in this time of Roman-occupied uh, Jerusalem. You are in a situation where uh, Romans are everywhere. Food is scarce. Taxes are up. So much so that it's 80%, 75% of your income. That uh, real estate, the kind of, is being taken over by Roman occupation anyway. You can't buy anything if you wanted to. And you hear of people getting oppressed every single day. And then you hear of other people called the Zealots, the Sicarii, who are people who are trying to, uh, pr- trying to overthrow the Roman government, trying to th- overthrow Roman oppression. And a little bit of you, deep down inside, is like, that might be a good idea. And there are people who have been called the so-called messiahs who have been very inspiring, have had great oratory skills, have been able to say amazing things, gather up a people of a few hundred thousand, try and overthrow the Romans, and they get horrendously crushed again. Yet, you know that in the Bible that in the chosen people of Israel are saved again and again. The simplest story of them getting released from the Egyptian hole that Pharaoh had. And so you have this whole bulk of scripture that you know is true, but in your present situation, you cannot see it happening. But you want this Roman occupation to get out. And then you hear about this guy. You hear about this guy called Jesus. Some people call him the Messiah. You're not sure about that yet, but you know that he's a good teacher. And you know that he's got something to say. And so you go. There's loads of people there, thousands. You go and you sit. And you're like, okay, I'm ready. I'm ready to hear what you have to say. Some of the stuff he, he, he says about loving other people, yeah, you get that. And then he says this. He says something so radical, so challenging, so pivotal, the climax of what he's been saying already within his sermon, the ultimate sermon, the main message that gives, him, that gives a manifesto of his beliefs. And he says this. Matthew 5, verses 43. You have heard it said, 
love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise in the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you only greet, if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Textbook. Thank you. Heavenly Father, we ask for you to come now. That we have our ears open to you and to what you have to say. That these words are as alive and as important now as they were 2,000 years ago. And that we as followers of Jesus, seeking to follow your way, Lord, will we not dial out because we think we've heard it before. But may we come to this with fresh perspective as if reading it for the first time. Amen. Okay. So, I'm needing my water. I've got a very dry mouth. So, verse 43. You've heard it said, love your neighbor. I'm sure most of us have heard about the, the idea of loving your neighbor. It's everywhere in scripture. God's, Jesus says uh, the two most important commandments are this. Love God, love your neighbor. Love your, your, love your neighbor as yourself. So we know this to be true, and not only do we know this to be true, but we know this to be pivotal within what Scripture says. Jesus starts this entire message by saying, actually, well, who is your neighbor, if, you're going to, if we're going to start there? And I wonder how you'd answer that question. Is it someone that you live next to, your literal neighbor? Is it someone that you work with, that you connect with every single day, people that are in your life, whether in the workplace, family, whatever it is? Is your neighbor something to do with proximity or relational proximity? We know this. We, know this. We, may have, we may be able to drum up the story of the Good Samaritan to think about the idea of what it means to be neighbor. But then he says this, and hate your enemy. Now, I've checked it out. It never says that in the Bible. Yes, an eye for an eye, maybe, but not hate your enemy. And in fact, hate your enemy isn't scriptural at all, but it's a, it's a Jewish idiom. It's something that they used to say. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. They used to say that about to each other all the time. It was like a catchphrase or a phrase, a bit of colloquialism for the day, to hate your enemy. But sometimes it's interesting to think, well, who is our enemy? Because... For us, an enemy seems almost like a, a, a political opponent or someone in war. But that isn't necessarily what, God, what Jesus is saying here. An enemy can be anyone that you don't get along with. Any, any party that you don't get along with, personal, political. An enemy is someone who, who perhaps you, don't necessarily, you, you would choose not to be around for whatever reason. The person in the office, you think, if I just, oh, they, they wind me up rotten. I'd rather talk about them than talk to them. But then he says this, not just, love your en- not just hate your enemy, but your enemies. He assumes it's plural. And for some of us, 
I wonder where this whole idea of enemies, we cut down to size just to be someone who can be a minor irritant. But you have to understand that when Jesus is saying this to the people of, it, the people of that day, the first image that would come to their mind, the very first about loving your enemies, were the Romans who are literally there, who are right next to them, who, are, who dictate their entire life. The best example I could think of was perhaps if, if Jesus was talking to the Parisians in France and when Germany were occupying them in World War II. Their enemy was someone right next door to them who hurt them, who they knew they couldn't, uh, they couldn't love. And we, as, God, as Jesus says, are called to love them. And love... There's only one word for love in the entire English language, so that we can love pizza, chips, and everything good. I had some Tom's Cakes today. Big up Tom's Cakes. I love Tom's Cakes. But also, that same love is, well, I love Jesus. I love my wife. I love my child. So what is love here? Because love in, this, in 21st century England, in the Western culture, for us today, I think it's different from the love that Jesus was talking about then. Because it's not just about thinking happy thoughts about the person next door. Perhaps when we think of love, we think of this, the idea of tolerance and acceptance. When you walk across Mill Road Bridge, I wouldn't recommend it now, try and look for it now because it's in the dark, but you will see that there is a massive uh, mural about tolerance and respect for each other. And sometimes we might leave love there. You have your truth, and I respect you for your truth. I have my truth, and you should respect for my truth. We never have a conversation about it. That's love. I wonder if that sounds familiar. I wonder if, that's some, I wonder if, you, if you can hear that, that, that in culture today. Because that isn't the love that Jesus is talking about. Loving your neighbor and loving your enemy is beyond that. It's the word agape or agape. I'm not a scholar. I don't know how you say it. You're supposed to pronounce it. Or a grape, as one person said. But it's definitely not a grape. The idea is to bend our will to that person. To pray for their best. Can you imagine that? For the Jewish people to be challenged, to pray for the best for this, Roman, for this Roman right next door to you. For a French person to try and pray for the best for, Nazi, for, for, for the German soldiers who maybe beat their family or someone next to them, someone to them. That kind of love. Your agenda, your whole attitude in this sense of love is to want the per, uh, that person to thrive, to do well, to be great, to have success. That's what this love is asking us to do. I don't know about you, but that challenges me. It's a love that goes way beyond just, yeah, totally respect you for whatever you're doing, cool. But at the same time, it's not a, it's not a love that therefore says, I totally ac- like, tolerate your behavior and say that's fine if we know that that's something that's not right. Actually, perhaps the most loving thing to do in that situation is to call it out of that person once we get alongside them. What Jesus is saying here is challenging, there's no doubt. But as always, Jesus has this landmark message and he brings it home to the practical. How do we even start? How do we even think about remotely doing this? By praying, by getting on our knees. I don't know about you, but sometimes I've been a Christian, I've been a follower of Jesus for... uh, 13, 14 years, and even now, praying for people who I don't like is really hard, <laughs> because I don't want to, because I like, to, I like to not like them. Does that make sense? Or am I the only one? I'm not sure. Feel led 
to pray for that person, for the enemy, to say, yes, I want the best for them. I pray for them that we may start to have a conversation, that I can begin to love my enemy. And to pray for a release of blessing for that person. If you start to do that, and I have no idea what enemies look like to you. We're going to dial into that a little bit more, a little while. But it can release something. I went to school uh, in, uh, in Birmingham. I'm a Brummie uh, for through and through. Got to the, it was very interesting with the villa. I'm, not, I'm, I'm going to give you some football chat. I don't watch football. So I don't know why I'm sharing this because it sounds like I know the sport, but I don't. Uh, but, you know, there was, it was interesting with the, with the West Brom and Villa Derby at the moment. Great. And... Uh, <laughs> And I, used to, I grew up in, a, in an all-boys school. I went to an all-boys school, and all-boys schools are brutal in some ways. You really have to toughen up a little, quite a lot very quickly. And I remember about third, third year in, and there was a guy, there was a boy um, who we will call uh, Jeffrey, and he, he was a really popular kid. Like, I wanted to be his friend. But at the same time, he was awful to me. Awful, awful, awful. To the point that actually he, uh, he mentioned, he used to kind of uh, take the mick out of the way I looked. I was, quite a lot, I was quite a lot bigger at that point. And what started then was a snowball effect of, of really struggling with that body image for the, for the, all the way through school. And I'd like to say that that was dealt with 10 years ago, job done. But it took years. Years and years and years of people praying with me, of, people, of me talking about, about this experience. And finally, someone said, maybe you should pray for him to actually, that for, uh, for fullness in his life, for me to actually start the conversation of maybe I will stop disliking you. Maybe I will stop hating you. You know, your enemies can't just, don't have to be just now. They can be enemies from the past, but their conversation, their words still ring true today. And I thought, Actually, that, that release that I got from that, from being, being able to pray in that way, was huge. Whitney and I watched a program uh, called SAS Who Dares Wins. Don't know if any of you have watched it. It's on Channel 4. It's excellent. It's a lot. It's, uh, the, you start with 25 uh, men, uh, men and women, and you do a series of tests. Uh, and basically, they try and whittle it down to the most macho people um, who, can, who can survive SAS training. It's brutal. I was about to show a clip, but then I realized the, the amount of swearing in it, I don't think could even pass any kind of like, test in church. So I decided not to. So you're welcome. I'm going to paraphrase the situation. So you're going to need to get your imagination hats on. Thank you, Jess. And every single recruit, every single recruit in, in SAS training on this program has a history. I'm, I'm convinced that the reason why they pick them is because they have a history of some description. And each of them gets brought into this bunker. They don't know where they are. They get a bit disorientated and they're brought in and they have this tough conversation with them. And every person's like, yeah, I had this trauma go on in my life and I'm here to prove myself. And some of them are about, you know, um, family members uh, suffering, etc., etc. But the one that really resonated with me was this boy, this man rather, who uh, said that he was, I think he was 35, and he got bullied when he was, in, he was about 10 or 11. And the words that affected him then of his enemy still, 22 years later, were affecting him then, to the point that he choked up, couldn't complete the, the story that he had. And he said, I am here to conquer that fear. 
But if that's the only way to do it, I don't know about you, that sounds tough, difficult, and I'm not sure works. People have a power over our thinking, yes, but Jesus offers a different way. We don't need to punish these enemies. The world, the world dictates that when we have an enemy, we might go to war with them. We might put economic sanctions in them. We might build a wall. We might do whatever. In the macro level, but in the micro level, we might gossip about this person. We might tweet about them. In fact, even, to, even today, I, uh, I follow a few different people on Instagram. I'm one of those people that, po- that, that never posts, but always read the posts of others. And uh, there's a guy called The Body Coach on there, and he was talking about a really amazing initiative that he's got. First comment underneath was, you're basically, why are you doing this? You're not even qualified. From, somewhat, from, from some unknown person. Always. And it's like, what earth is going on? We don't understand sometimes how to love our enemy. We get the love part, and maybe you're like, Chris, you had me at love, but you lost me at enemy. So how do we do it? How do we even get there? How is, what is even the situation to be able to do this? Why do we even bother? Verse 45, that you may be children of heaven. What is our motivation? What is our driving force? Because this is what God is like. When we love our enemy, we become like him. And he did not pick and choose who was allowed to enter into that. How do we know that? Because the image that he gives us in this scripture is about rain and about sun. And that rain, when rain falls, rains on everybody. We know that very true in the UK. Not so much in Cambridge, but at least in the UK, we know about the rain. When it's sunny, everyone gets sunny. Everyone gets the sun. Check the weather forecast today. And uh, the weather in Pyongyang, in Korea, North Korea, is looking pretty good. The weather in uh, Raqqa, which is where the capital of ISIS was, there's no tsunami, there's no uh, earthquakes happening. It's pretty balmy. A bit hot for me, but it's pretty good. What does that teach us? What does that teach us about Jesus? That he will bless everyone. He wants us to love everyone. Bless them. Come and imitate what God has already done to up for us and be members of the family of God. But that sounds really tricky, right? How do we even start? What does it even look like? I was reading a, few, a report, uh, a story not too long ago about a guy called uh, Daryl Davis. You may never have heard of him, um, but he is a blues musician in America. And he, I don't think he's a Christian, but he did decide that actually, as well as uh, being a musician, he wanted to kind of come alongside someone. May I also say that Daryl Davis is, uh, is black, he's Afro-Caribbean, and he decided for the past 30 years that he was going to come alongside and befriend uh, the Ku Klux Klan. He says, once the friendship blossoms, the Klansmen realize that, that their hate may be misguided. Since David started talking with these members, he says 200 Klansmen have given up their robes. When that happens, he collects the robes and keeps them in his home as a reminder of the dent he has made in racism by simply sitting down and having dinner with people. Isn't that loving your enemy? By sitting down? 
but maybe not saying that I love you, but maybe by starting having a conversation, by looking someone in the eye, by actually changing our posture of completely, I'll never talk to you, to actually doing something different. You know, the first thing that happened when he did that, he got tons of flack from, from uh, social justice people and those of others. Why would you do that? That's offensive. You should never do that. Yet he chose to anyway, and look where he's making an impact. The challenge for us, guys, as part of the evening gathering, my challenge that I've, I'm taking on myself, and I think maybe we need to as well, is if we're going to love our enemy, we may need to push ourselves in terms of our social circles. Usually, we only hang out with the people who we like, right? I don't, I usually, it's not usual practice to, to, to always associate the people that really annoy us and wind us up, because they annoy us and wind us up. But if you only love people from your background, then, as Jesus says, we're just like everybody else. We're just like the pagans. We're just like the tax collectors. And the tax collectors were hated at that time. If we, are, if, we are in a, if we as a group are closed-minded, and by as a group I mean us as millennials, as people who decide that we're not going to hang out with people who don't confirm our own beliefs, then how can we help the people who most need it? Daryl Davis did it. You can hear about another man in a minute who did it as well. Because Jesus crossed all sorts of thresholds. you imagine what Jesus would be like in a situation now where he would push past all the, nor- all the nor- norms, so to speak, and go to that outcast, go to that homeless person, go to that person who's ostracized that we would never talk to? He did it then. He'd push past the Pharisees who you'd think he'd hang out with and instead hang out with the, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the homeless, the unclean, whatever it would look like, to demonstrate that he was the man who would push past social norms so the people who needed it, who needed to know the love of God for the first time, who may have been called enemies in that situation, weren't anymore. He started the conversation. Do we need to start the conversation, guys? Do we need to get alongside someone who perhaps we do not necessarily associate ourselves with and maybe do something different? Is that to you radical love? For us, maybe today we find the idea of Jesus hanging out with pagans a bit like, well, I don't know what a pagan is. What even is a pagan? Is that someone who dances in the morning, like, you know, at Stonehenge? What's a pagan? But what about if Jesus hung out with, I don't know, terrorists and sat down and had a meal? Would we find that offensive? Would we find that difficult to stomach? Not that he might might be endorsing what they're doing, of course not. But he might say hello and key, turn an enemy into a neighbour. His way is love. Not through violence, not through aggression, not through hard persuasion, but love. So what's our our, our takeaway then? Right at the end of 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 the passage, it says this. Be perfect. So there you go. Job done. See you later. That's your message for us today. Be perfect. Pretty tricky. What does it even mean? How is that even possible? The last sign of this teaching on enemy loving, how can we be perfect at all? Because perfect really is a bad word. It's a really bad translation for us. Think more mature, adult, fully developed, however you might think it. In my primary school, my year sixes, they think that they are the absolute bee's knees. They think, 
swaggering around school. They've got pencils in their pocket. They've got a really cool back cap, uh, rucksack. They're talking, looking at year ones. Ha, you don't know anything. I've been here for a grand total of six years. I know everything this school has to offer. I know the world. And that's their kind of attitude. And in my mind, I'm like, you may think you are fully, you are fully mature, but my goodness, you're going to have a wake-up call when you go to secondary school. And of course, they're not mature. They still laugh at the word poo. And I'm like, you're 10, you're 11, get over it. But they won't. What Jesus is saying is not be perfect, but to be mature. You are to grow and mature into the person who is like God. And the key question to ask ourselves is, where am I on the journey of maturity? How much would you say that you love your enemy? How much would you say that you would pray for them? That's the ultimate litmus test. How much are we willing to start a conversation with the people that we may not necessarily associate ourselves with? How much are we willing to pray for the people who we know have hurt us? In short, our call, our lifetime call, is to turn our enemy into our neighbor. Is this possible? Yes, because you are all evidence that it can happen. Romans 5, verse 9, chapter 5, 9 to 11. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath? If, 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 for if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Colossians chapter 1. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. You guys are living proof of that an enemy can become part of the family. And I don't think Jesus forced you into it, pushed you, hurt you, or in any other way made it any aggressive way. I believe and I imagine the reason why you are here tonight is because someone got alongside you who was your neighbor and said I love you why don't you come to this that the other why don't we pray why don't we have a meal why don't you come and do alpha you are all living proof of it and we get to boast about God how did he win you over through love through cross shaped Love, he made you his son and daughter. How do we know it works? We're one proof. And there's another, there's loads. And I was reading just um, a bit of um, Martin Luther King's essays, and he says this little quote here. And, and again, I don't know about you, but just can you hear what Jesus is saying? Like, can you hear Jesus ringing out in what, in what Luther King says here? It's very, it's very small, so I'm going to have to do this. I need glasses. To our most bitter... Sorry, Rachel, I realise I'm kind of standing right in your mind. I don't, I don't mean to. I'm, living, I'm not going to get... Anyway, shut up, Chris. To our most bitter opponents, we say, we shall match your capacity to inflict, inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We shall meet your physical force with soul force. Soul force, isn't that great? 
We, do, do to us what you will and we, shall not, and we shall continue to love you. We cannot in all good conscience obey your unjust laws because non-cooperation with evil is as much a moral obligation as it is cooperation with good. Throw us into jail and we will still love you. Bomb our homes and threaten our children and we shall still love you. Send your perpetrators of violence into our community at the midnight hour and beat us and leave us half dead and we shall still love you. I wonder if this is what loving your enemy can mean. But be assured that we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer. One day we shall win freedom, but not only for ourselves. We shall do so, appeal to your heart and conscience that we shall win you in the process and our victory will be a double victory. What a man. What a message. What an attitude and a posture, right? Isn't that amazing? Yeah? Yeah, absolutely. And we know that that transforms an entire nation and beyond by his capacity to love his enemy. So, we're coming into land. What does Jesus say? That loving our enemy will be easy? No, that you'll be happy always? It's tricky. But will, you, but will you be more like God and develop an intimate relationship with him to an, a greater extent? Yes. And isn't that worth it? Because the alternative to love, in terms of loving our enemy violence or aggression or horrible words what has history told us it doesn't work it never has Jesus invitation for us in this idea of radical love it's not safe but since when was Christianity about being safe anyway it says instead as John Ortberg calls it he says we go through spiritual greatness in a divine conspiracy of sacrificial love let me say it again that we, we, if we love our enemy, we go through spiritual greatness in the divine conspiracy of sacrificial love. Even though you may have hurt me, even though I know we don't get on, even though this might in, feel really difficult, I will sacrifice that because I know that you need love as much as anybody else. Radical love is two-sided. That we receive it, for ourselves, but that we give it to the same extent that Jesus did it for us. I don't know your stories, and I haven't got time to tell you mine, really. But if you're anything like me, you were far from God, and someone through uh, someone decided that they were going to be your neighbour, they were going to love you, and they were going to absolutely pray for you to be part of this family and the greater one of the church of Jesus. I don't know about you, but I think that's pretty sweet.